Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome to Heard Tell. Uh, this is going to be good. Been wanting to talk to him for a long time. One of those things that comes to doing programs like this is when you have somebody that's specially in their field, like our economist friends we have, they start talking about other people and they go, hey, you should get this guy on the show. This is one of those guys over and over again. They tell us our friends like Stephen Popick and them, they're always like, you need to get this guy on the show. And here he is, Joe. See, I was practicing and now I forgot already. Politano, Politano. Politano, just Politano. All right. All the Youngstown branch of the Donaldsons that spelled the name wrong and married into the Italians are all cringing right now. <laughs> Joseph Politano, Tano. See, I still can't do it. Joseph Politano <laughs> is joining us. He knows what he's talking about. Even when I don't, he's an economist. He has a great sub stack that has now gone full time. We'll get into that in just a minute, sir. So grateful that you gave us the time today. Good to finally talk to you, buddy. Yeah, it's great to talk to you too. I'm, I'm very happy to be on here. I'm thankful that you uh, had me on and I'm thankful to uh be highly recommended <laughs> it's it, it's quality people recommending you too i promise you uh he's got a sub stack a Pricketos economics we're going to be working off that a lot we're going to link to all this uh make sure you're reading it make sure you subscribe to it it has a free side and a subscription side the free side enough is you just need a spoon to get through this stuff i actually want to start right there with you though because every time i have an economist on i always ask them a variety of this question when you sit down to look at it, because economics, it's such a math-heavy discipline. It's such a wonky discipline. It's got so much terminology. There's a lot of theory involved in it. When you sit down to write something and you're just writing it for the average person to read, where do you get into this stuff at? What are you looking at? Because you don't start out with a math equation or the Laffer curve or GDP. That's not where you start when you just sit down to read. What are you looking at? Are you looking at like, oh, there's this cost of living thing or, oh, there's this economic indicator and I'm going to explain it. Where do you start when you're trying to communicate something like economics to folks? Yeah, you know, I um, have a bit of a non-traditional background in that. I did, you know, don't have a PhD right now, um, don't have a master's degree. And so uh, I think it gives maybe a little more flexibility to me and how I address things. Um, you know, when I think about what makes economics important, what makes it special is that basically everyone, really, whether you want to or not, you know, participates in the economy every single day. And so if you work backward from, you know, people's participation, people's experience, and then you can say, here's, you know, maybe how you feel or something you might have noticed or something you've heard in the news. Here's uh, the, the data surrounding that. And here's the narrative um, that I'm going to put in air quotes, like actually true here. 
So a lot of the pieces I write is like, here's something you might have heard in the media. Um, here's, you know, either my spin on it or what the data actually says or how people are misinterpreting things. And I think if you start from that base of like, hey, this is how it affects your real life experience, your uh, real life understanding of the economy, it works a lot better. And I think a lot of the concepts, you know, the math, Sometimes it's just to present the concept in uh, the least biased, most clear way possible. Sometimes it's a little gatekeepy, but in in that ideal scenario, you know, you can condense the math into just explaining, you know, the concept. Okay, the the marginal propensity to consume is if you get X amount of dollars, how much it do you spend? You know, and that. If you work from that, you know, people know, understand if I got a raise, how much of it would I spend? That's a, you know, simple, uh, simple thing to communicate. And you could work from there on, well, you know, we think when housing prices go up, people spend some, but a limited number of it out of that. And that builds, you know, you're building up the understanding. So, it's inter- yeah, it's an interesting point you raise because we talk about this in journalism a lot, you know. Part of the problem with some of journalism now is everybody goes to the same schools and they have the same internships and they all work at the same places and they're all trying to work at the same places in this. Um, you can talk about that in any walk of life, any discipline. It becomes kind of a funnel because everybody kind of ends up doing the same thing. You talk about it in whatever discipline you want. Is that a problem in economics? Is there just a little bit too much sameness where folks are they're taking the same academic paths, they're doing the same career paths, and then they either go work in finance or they go work in the government, and then that just that it becomes a pawn to king four thing where it's like, well, your first move kind of sets up everything else that happens from there. Does there need to be a little bit more variety in in who we get into economics? I'm sure that's true in all career fields, but it sounds like that's something that could actually be done here, where there when you kind of start to lose the practical side of it because it becomes a pipeline for a career path, right? Yeah, I, I think there's there's something to that in, you know, the academic demands on people who want to be full-time professors, want to do research, are really crazy. And there's lots of people I know personally who I view as, you know, a brilliant, hardworking, accomplished experts who don't or can't get the PhD. And that locks you out of a whole series of, you know, systems. And I think especially on the media side, if you're saying I'm I'm an economist, I'm trying to communicate to the public about something, um, you end up like self-selecting away a lot of interesting perspectives. You know, if you're someone who is extremely successful within the academic sphere you know, you don't talk, do media tours, you're so busy. If you're someone who doesn't make it in the academic sphere, you know, you go on Wall Street, like you're, you might be very accomplished, but you're not going to talk to people about what you do or, you know, what you think the economy is in public way. Um, And so you end up with only a certain subset of people within the narrow subset of economics professionals who are like, you know, writing consistently, you know, talking on television, trying to communicate their ideas. Um, and I think that's a group that's growing. I think that's a group that's like getting better in the sense that it's incorporating a wider range of perspectives and, and uh, backgrounds. But I do think there's like 
a, a bit of a problem whenever you're trying to you know communicate economic concepts i still think it's funny that like people instinctively associate economists with like you know stockbrokers investors you know that's their mental model of, of like oh i shouldn't you know i wouldn't take advice seriously from somebody who is a stockbroker or, or you know works for a major investment bank i'm not going to take an economist seriously either and i think that speaks to like these are the kind of people that are getting self-selected into uh the media side of economics this is the outward facing perspective of people who aren't in the industry aren't experts and it's not an accurate portrayal of what you know academic econ research is like what econ writing is like what people in econ are interested in or where they come from you know so that's a, a long way to say yes i think that there is a a bias problem in how economics is structured and how it uh, shows itself to the rest of the world. All right. And we're going to do some banging on some of the professional economic folks later on as we talk through some of these issues. <laughs> but to be fair, what's the economic literacy of the American people right now? We have all this technology. We have the ability to look up anything we want. I, I think COVID maybe changed it a little bit where people, you know, at least they know what a supply chain is now where they may not have known <laughs> things like this, which is it, it's bad that it happened, but it, it is a good thing. The, the running joke when I first got into media, people was like, well, the only time you can talk about economics is Christmas and if something bad happens. That's the only time, two times the media wants to talk about economics. I think we've kind of broken that a little bit. But from where you sit, let, let's put it on us, the people, the regular folks, too. We don't do a great job of keeping ourselves informed on economic issues. And then when the crisis comes, we're not sure whether the person on the TV screen is knows what they're talking about or not because we didn't do our own homework. From where you sit on that side of it, where do you think the economic literacy of the American people is right now today in the year of our Lord 2022? Uh, the way I tend to think about it is like anytime you ask people these broad questions about the economy, they give like terrible answers. Um, <laughs> I, I saw there was a great little study done by uh, somebody at the IMF and I'm going to uh, kick myself for not remembering who the author was. He basically was polling members of general public and saying, hey, if this thing happened in the economy, what would you expect it to do? You know, if they raised income taxes, if they raised government spending, if they raised interest rates, blah, blah, blah. And it's very funny to me because a lot of them were like completely counterintuitive to what, you know, the experts saying. So if they, uh, I asked, if they raise interest rates, what do you expect will happen to inflation? And the answer from the majority of the general public was oh inflation will go up which is you know the opposite it, it's uh intended by the federal reserve when they raise interest rates to lower inflation <laughs> um and similarly we're like we're oh if they raise income tax what's gonna happen to inflation they most people said it would go up and that's like you know if, if it's a fiscal shock like that you know you're saying taxes are going up expect inflation to go down um but i by the same token, I think because people are forced to, because they experience it every day, they understand you know, their situation very well. And that's a form of economic knowledge, even if it's not like, you know, macro, um, you know, big picture macro, being able to explain, you know, what the, the marginal propensity to consume or whatever it is. Um, and I think, you know, there's something you said for this idea that if 
you know, everybody knows their, their area really well. You sum up to something that gets closer to <laughs> economic knowledge. Yeah, Joseph Palatano joining us. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, come back. We're going to go into some of the issues going on today, but we're going to do what we always do. We're going to back up and try to find out how we got here because economics is one of those things that happens on a timeline. We're going to dig through it. We're going to use housing, try to tie a lot of things together, talking about housing because that's the number one outlay most people have. So that's their biggest economic thing that they deal with. Uh, we're going to walk through a lot of this stuff, more from the outstanding uh, substack. He writes the Apricatos. I'm going to get it right one of these days, economic substack, which we'll be talking about more with our friend Joseph right after this. Hertel continues. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome back to Hertel, continuing to talk economics, our friend Joseph Politano. Uh, see, I've been practicing it during the break. Uh, he, one of our core things on our program, and we say it over and over again, it's one of our core values. Things don't happen in a vacuum, they happen in a sequence. So it seems like when we were in COVID, everything is just COVID and pre-COVID. Now it seems like everything economic is like, well, since COVID, that crushes our perspective down. That doesn't give us the full picture. You did something in your latest Substack letter. You went back to 08. And of course, you can go back as far as you want. You know, 08 is because of what happened in the 90s. 90s is because of what Reagan did. Reagan is because of what happened in the 70s. You can go on and on and on and on with this stuff. But let's just make it a bite-sized piece. 2008 and the last housing crisis, the Great Recession, whatever you want to call it, to COVID to today. Why did you draw that line? Because I think it is important. COVID was a unique thing, but it also happened in a sequence of events. And I think going back to 08 gives us a little bit of perspective. Why did you draw that conclusion? Because I think it really works to give us a little perspective here. Yeah, I think there's um, the 08 housing narrative is obviously very sprawling. And I think uh, there's a lot of ways you can approach it. And I think putting aside all of the, the financial end of it, so the financial crisis, the, the shadow banking system, you know, the mortgage-backed securities crisis, let's just talk about the housing, capital H housing market, you know, building residential homes. Um, I think there's this argument you had in like the 90s, 80s, and maybe a little before, you know, you had some cities that were more expensive, some cities that were relatively cheaper the gap between them was you know decent but it was bridgeable and because you know the economic growth economic opportunity was less concentrated in the us it wasn't that big a deal um people generally were able to move more 
you're able to put down uh, homes easier than than nowadays. Um, but over time, especially in the late 90s, early 2000s, in the wake of the 2001 recession, you have this concentration of like, okay, New York, Los Angeles, increasingly at that time, San Francisco, you know, and, and a couple other cities, very, very expensive. Um, but by the opposite token, if you are the kind of person that can move to those cities, can get a very high paying job and can afford it, it's extremely lucrative. Uh, if you are the kind of person who can't get that kind of high paying job, it becomes a significant burden to try to live in, in Los Angeles and New York in these very expensive cities. So people leave, you know, they move to Phoenix or Vegas or Miami or Atlanta, you know, these places where construction is much easier, prices are cheaper, economic opportunity is maybe a bit worse, wages are maybe a bit worse, but it's not like a disaster. You know, I, I've been to Phoenix, it's a nice place. Um, <laughs> the 2005-2008 period when interest rates are rising, then you have the crisis basically choke that end of it off. So you have um, people in Los Angeles who are moving to Phoenix, that's like the outlet valve for housing demand in Los Angeles, when interest rates start going up, you know, and, and housing demand started creating, the construction in Phoenix started cratering. And then obviously when the recession hit and unemployment spikes, you have you know, for, massive foreclosures, demands just totally collapsed. In the wake of that, we basically never recovered you know, the housing production that we had, even in, you know, the pre-2008 period where you weren't building in Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York, you weren't building expensive cities, you're doing like second best construction in Phoenix and Atlanta and Vegas, et cetera. Um, we didn't even recover that fully. And so you have this national housing shortage that's very acute in these, these superstar cities in New York and San Francisco, where housing's really expensive because these are the only places that are hogging these like massive economic opportunities. Um, and then the pandemic hits. And the narrative everybody has about the pandemic, you know, initially is uh, about how chaotic it was. I think people forget that like everyone was panicking um, those first few months and there's these great stories from like these these housing companies where they're like oh we're, we're laying off everybody because they expected another 2008 and then a few months later what people realize is like okay everybody's moved back home you have this massive negative demand shock if you were in these really expensive cities you suddenly went well i'm you know stuck at home in my very tiny new york apartment and I have to spend 24 hours a day here. I hate it. <laughs> so you leave and you go to you know, Phoenix or Atlanta, like I was saying, these, these smaller cities where it's less expensive, um, especially in Florida and Texas nowadays. So it's like Houston, Dallas, Austin, Miami, and, and uh, some of the other areas there. And so you have this really interesting dynamic where because of the pandemic, you know, you have this construction boom in areas where uh, previously were less desirable comparatively places to live, where people didn't want to move because they were worried about the lack of economic opportunity or whatever. Um, and so the, the point I was trying to make in the piece that I wrote recently is like, I 
uh, it's very weird moment because you don't really know what to expect. Like maybe work from home is permanent and you have all of these people who used to work, you know, in uh, tech companies in San Francisco and now they're working remotely from, you know, Vegas or whatever. Or maybe it reverts back, you know, people are coming in two days or three days a week into the office. So they still want to live in San Francisco, even if they're doing some stuff remote. You know, maybe these smaller cities, I think Raleigh's a good example, like they kickstart their own industries. Raleigh has a tech industry that's um, arguably as good as anywhere else except San Francisco. And, you know, we're seeing companies moving to Austin, to Miami, to uh, these these cities that are have been growing in the last few years. Um, and so the thought the other thought you have is like, okay, maybe we have this superstar phenomenon. You know, maybe a lot of the economic opportunities concentrated in a few cities, but there's no iron law that those cities have to be New York and San Francisco. You know, maybe the 2020s you have economic co opportunities concentrated in, you know, Austin and Atlanta and you know, that's uh, exciting because I don't really know. I, I think people have forecasts, but I don't have any answers yet um, because of how crazy the housing market has been over the last few years. Yeah. One indicator that you did touch in on the piece was um, the less expensive, because we, when we talk housing, everybody thinks home ownership. They put those two things together, but housing isn't just home ownership. You talk about rent too. And one of the numbers that is really interesting in here, and you didn't even have a really a good answer for it other than look at this number. This is really interesting. <laughs> those those mid-size and smaller cities that are developing, like, take New York and LA out of it because they're always going to have built-in advantages because New York is where you know most of the immigrants in America wind up in New York and LA is where everybody flees New York and moves to LA. So they've got built-in stuff. They're always going to be the two big cities no matter what happens. And San Francisco has so much money, it's almost an outlier. You mentioned a place like Seattle. Their tech boom was a hit about 10 years ahead of everybody else's because of Microsoft. What happened there where everybody went rushing in there for the high-paying jobs, there's no housing. Now, you talked about places like Austin, places like Phoenix, places like Atlanta, places like Raleigh. The housing prices are staying pretty good, but what you saw all of a sudden now is the rent has gone off the chart, and the rent and the rent in the, those superstar cities went way down and kind of cratered out a little bit. It's come back up. But the rent situation, even in the quote unquote affordable cities to live in, the rent situation has really changed. Those two things go together. So when you've got a developing place like a Raleigh, for folks that don't know, Apple and Amazon are both putting headquarters in Raleigh. It's, it's, a, it's a happening place. Pittsburgh's becoming tech. The Lehigh Valley, which used to be, you know, that was Bethlehem Steel. That's becoming high tech now. We're seeing a trend now where, yeah, these are affordable housing prices, but when those jobs go in, the rent goes way up. That's a housing issue, too. Yeah, and, and I think it, it speaks to this fact that you have, um, you know, you don't have one market, even though sometimes people want to imagine it that way in the U.S. You have, like, thousands of interconnected local markets, um, and it's very hard for people to absorb these, like, migration shocks that happened fundamentally because we've made it too expensive to live in basically any major city in America. Um, and, and the stat I was looking at that's really crazy, it's like the rent prices are up about 7% over the last year in the whole US. But if you look at like some cities, if Phoenix, it's up 21%. You know, um, Atlanta, it's up like 15%. Miami is up like 17%. That's, you know, 
crazy. And if you're somebody who was living there before the pandemic, you know, that is appreciable expense for you. That's a very difficult thing to make work all of a sudden a, a you know, 20% increase in rent over, you know, two years functionally. Um, and there are cities that we see, especially the ones in Texas that responded, you know, they have less rent growth because they you know, built so many homes and they've built more in response to uh, what's been happening since the start of the pandemic. Uh, but there are also a lot of cities that even though they're they're small, even though they're affordable, it's not because they were building a ton of housing or because it's easy to build housing there. It was just because of you know what the job market was like, um, what the amenities were in that city. So it's it's yeah, it's a very crazy time. Yeah, Joseph Panatano, because I keep trying to say Pantone because those are our Italian cousins. <laughs> I keep conflating in my head. We're going to continue. We're going to use housing to talk through this economic stuff because that's something everybody can relate to. We're going to get into some of these numbers. He's got a shocking statistic on housing building. Uh, the state that is uh, permitting more new housing builds going to surprise you a little bit. Also, continuing to talk about housing in general, the economy in general. We're going to ask him some tough questions and see if he can get them so even I can understand him here in a minute. Uh, Joseph Palatano. See, I'll keep working on it. Joseph Palatano uh, of the wonderful economic blog. We're going to keep talking about it. One more quick break on Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back. We are talking economics with our friend Joseph Politano. Uh, we are using housing as a thread through a lot of different stuff here because housing is the most expensive thing for most people. There's a stat that you have in your latest uh, Apricotas blog that, well, it's a substack. I shouldn't say so. the Apricotas substack. This blew my mind. Raleigh and the Research Triangle area, talking about North Carolina, we just talked about this. They have Apple's got a headquarters in there. Amazon's got a headquarters in Lenovo, the laptop maker. Their headquarters and one of their manufacturing facilities is there. This, this is a very up-and-coming city. North Carolina now permits nearly as many housing units as California. North Carolina has a third of the population of California and much more spread out over a larger area. You know, you got a couple urban centers, Raleigh. Um, of course, Charlotte, Fayetteville, a few places like that. But that's a shocking statistic when it comes to housing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it should speak to how uh, absolutely terrible um, California's housing shortage is and how little they build compared to basically any other um, place in America. You know, they have 40 million people and they build like as many as, like you said, um, North Carolina, South Carolina, about the same number. So we're talking 8,000 permitted units a month versus like a little over 7,000 in uh, North Carolina. Those numbers you know, bounce around pretty frequently. But uh, the point is like, yeah, they, there are some parts of America that just do not build. 
um, anywhere near the necessary amount of housing. And the other critical thing to, to think about in California is like, it's not just they don't build enough housing, it's that there's basically no supply response in, in total. So if you look at like since 2017, the pace of home building in California hasn't moved. And if you've you know talked to anyone in California since 2015, you know that prices have gone up, you know that rent's gone up, you know it's gotten more difficult to live there. And there isn't this response of, even if you're not building enough, you'd hope prices go up, you'd hope more suppliers enter the market, you hope more construction happens. That just doesn't happen in California. Um, and so we're talking about that, like the outlet valve is um the outlet valve is phoenix but the also thing is eventually it becomes uh, a competitive advantage to try to move whatever you can out of the most expensive areas just to save on cost you know um it's it's hard to employ people in san francisco in los angeles because um it's so expensive, very much like a Yogi Berra. Nobody goes there because it's so crowded, you know. <laughs> Nobody wants to live here because it's so expensive. Um, but it's true that you see people moving out because of the prices. Um, and we're in a situation now where, like, the te Texas and California, Texas alone builds twice as much as California. Um, and Texas has 10 million people less. Florida builds functionally as much as California before the pandemic and now significantly more after. Um, and that's like crazy. And so if you want to talk about where uh, the economic growth is in, in this market, where the actual construction is, it's not in these like really big cities anymore. It's not in California, which I think is, is sad because there's lots of people who understandably would want to live in California. And there's a lot of problems that develop when you, you know, don't build for the amount of demand there is in the uh, in the state. Yeah, and let's break this down for folks. There's a reason housing is such an important economic indicator. When you build a house, and the number varies a little bit, but it's something like 25, 26 separate trades go into building one single house. So that's dozens and dozens of people that are subcontracting. That's on top of the dozens and dozens of people it takes to build the home. That has entire supply chains behind them. Building a home is a huge economic ripple. That's just one home. So then when you get into these areas like a Raleigh where they're building building them by the hundreds at a time, that's a huge pipeline of economic activity, not just for the home buyers and the home sellers, but all the tradesmen, you know, the contractors, the inspectors, then you have the secondary folks, you know, you know, the termite inspectors got to go look at the house, right? You know, things you don't even think of. There's so many tentacles to the housing market of building homes. So when you stop building homes, that's why it's such an indicator of economic activity. And when you're building a ton of homes, the reverse is true. And that's why you as an economist, that's why you watch that number so tightly, isn't it? Yeah. And if you're thinking about like, how, how do people feel about the economy? It has a lot to do with housing markets, how uh, confident they are depends on, you know, what the housing market looks like and vice versa more confident people are more likely to go out and say i'm you know willing to buy a house here um and the interesting dynamic that we're talking about here where like people move from los angeles or new york to these these other uh, places that only happens when people are very confident about their economic state because you're you know you're talking about moving halfway across the country 
try to buy a house, get a new job. You know, you got to be in a really good place to make that bet. Um, so that's a really important economic indicator. And I think it says a lot about the, the U.S. labor market, you know, putting aside the work from home trend that we just had this supercharge of people who were competent enough to move across state lines, you know, in, in 2021 after you know, the initial pandemic shock. What's the economic indicators for interstate movement? Because people love to use those numbers. They use them in a political sense, like, oh, look, everybody's moving to a red state. That Some of that's true, but there's other things. You know, L.A. is always going to have people moving to L.A. because it's L.A. It's got built-in stuff. You know, then you have, you know, blue enclaves in red states, like in Austin, um, places like this. Uh, are those numbers really viable? We use them politically and talk about people voting with their feet and all that. But those kind of numbers can also be a little misleading because, like you said, we don't have one. This is a great line, by the way. You ought to trade market. We don't have one housing market. We've got 10,000 little housing markets, and every one of them has their own little story. How do we parse that out? Because that's a head. Look, we're going to see that headline again. Every time we have an election, we have that headline of everybody's moving to the red states. Everybody's fleeing the blue states or vice versa. How do we parse through that with some actual data and numbers? Because, yeah, it's kind of true, but it depends. Yeah, it's it's really hard. So unfortunately, there's um, the thing you learn in this business is that whenever you want a data point, it's going to take five years for it to be published, and then nobody's going to care. So like the most comprehensive stuff comes from the IRS because people have to file their taxes. So if you move, you know, at any point during the year, uh, and you're filing taxes from a new location, the IRS catches you, but they don't publish that until years after the fact because, you know, to protect people's privacy and to make, give them enough time to let everybody file. What we can look at is like the, uh, the postal service address changes. So people are calling the postal service and saying, hey, I'm moving from here to here. Can you change my address? Can you forward my mail? Um, that saw the big upturn in 2021. My, my friend Paul Williams has done some really great research on this, talking about the places people were moving to and the, the supply responses or lack thereof in some areas. So, you know, lots of people move to Boise, lots of people move to Montana, lots of people move to Denver. Um, these like mountain lion cities, I like kind of cute way to call them. Um, those places built maybe a little more housing, but it's not a lot. It's really, you know, a lot of these places in uh, the South and in particular Texas, I think I really can't understate how uh, crazy it is the amount of housing that gets built in Texas. Um, yeah, I think it's hard to say like what policy is driving this beyond, you know, the housing prices are cheaper because if you're looking at it too, it's like people are moving to Texas, but they're mostly moving to Austin, Houston, Dallas, the suburbs thereof, you know, so uh, are these people who are, more conservative uh, probably not it's probably more so people who just couldn't afford what they were at before people who are maybe lower income uh californians who are moving out of the state i think i think that's less a political statement about california and more of an economic statement about you know uh the specific housing policies in california and and in texas like i think if you had Maybe Austin is a possible example of this happening in the future. You know, if Austin inherited Los Angeles's housing problems, people would leave it for the same reason. 
Um, Austin builds a lot more than Los Angeles right now, but you know, it's possible. Uh, and I don't think there's anything from the state government in Texas, except for the fact that they're willing to preempt local zoning a little more, a lot more than uh, in California. There's a long-winded way of saying this, but you know, when we think about people moving, we think about people like searching for new opportunities. One of the favorite things I read from Professor Leah Bustan in um, her book uh, about immigration economics is if you look at immigrants to the US, they earn more than Americans over time. And the reason for this is not because they are you know, innately special or you're self-selecting the, the best and brightest purely from these countries, but actually because when they get to the US, they go, okay, what's the, the biggest opportunity place that I can move to, you know? And if you're in America, you're born in America, you, you have some uh, ties to your local area. Moving is really difficult. I've tried it a few times, it's not fun. <laughs> People understandably don't wanna do it that often. And so if people stop moving you know, across the country, economists get worried about dynamism. They're saying, okay, well, if people are stuck where they are, you know, that's not good for long-run economic growth. That's not good for people's wages. That's not good for uh, ingenuity investment and so on. So you know, the idea that people are moving again uh, is, I think, very important. Did we learn anything? Because we're, you know, we're getting away from the pandemic now. Like you just made the crack and you're only half joking. You're saying like, well, it takes five years to get the data point out that you really need. <laughs> we're not five years from COVID yet, but we're far enough from it now that that we're seeing what the bounce back's going to be, give or take. Um, the service sector is still weird. We have really weird stuff in the economy. We have, you know, like low unemployment and a labor shortage at the same time, just stuff that on paper shouldn't exist. Have we learned anything and and break it into the two parts, both the economist and just the average person, because those are two very different things. I know we all went through it. I know it was loud. I know we all had some pain, but did we learn anything? I think so. I think, you know, it's hard to write history as it happens. It's hard to forecast. It's especially hard to forecast uh, in the middle of, of something like this, in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, but I do think, I'm hopeful that the institutions are going to come out of this a little stronger than they went in. I think the the big lessons, if you were to put like in all capital letters, um, was that the economy was stronger than people expected in maybe late 2020, early 2021. I think there was a very reasonable fear when the pandemic hit, you know, that we were going to have a repeat of the 2008 crisis, which took like a decade before growth came back still is leaving permanent scars on our economy was talking about millions of people permanently out of work for years you know, that kind of stuff was a nightmare to people so everyone pulled out all the stops to try to prevent that um and across the world i think uh, central banks and uh, central governments 
underestimated the strength of the overall economy because things were so weird during the pandemic and because you know we had never had this happen where a modern economy has to interact with these kind of uh, public health issues uh and so i'm hopeful that that leads to a little more understanding of what the indicators mean i'm hopeful for the general public that you know uh, we talk about this like rational inattentiveness model in economics that's one of my favorite things because it, it explains so much it's like if something doesn't matter to people if something isn't affecting people's day-to-day -day lives they don't pay attention to it and then once it does they pay attention they learn and you know hopefully they carry that information to next time um i think you saw it with inflation where lots of people were um, not worried about inflation now we're very worried about inflation uh, hopefully i think learning more about what it means and and what it um you know how it happens and what can be done to fix it i uh, hope that people get a greater understanding of the labor market you know you you made that comment about like how do we have a labor shortage you know and unemployment is so low it's like well that's there's the two sides to the same coin here you know if companies are struggling to find workers it's because uh workers bargaining positions are so high you know it's because you have such a strong labor market um i'm hoping people appreciate that a little more and i'm hoping that people can now recognize what um a better future labor market could look like you know throughout the mid 2000s 2010s we really had like a very weak labor market in the us people forget like the 2001 recession and its aftermath was called like the jobless recovery because yeah there weren't that many uh the job growth was really weak and job growth was of course really really weak in the wake of 2008 and now we're seeing it very strong um so i'm hopeful that policymakers you know can see that and learn from it and the last thing i'll say is like things were kind of easy <laughs> before you know jokingly where if you'd come to me in like 2012 and said uh, you know, Joey, what's the problem in the economy? I would have just told you, you know, there's all these people out of a job, there's not enough demand. If you boost demand, you're gonna get more people back in work, you're gonna get production up, it'll help. You know, and that slack basically meant that whatever you did in the economy, whatever, you know, central governments, federal governments were doing to boost the economy was effective regardless of whether it was efficient, you know, because there was just so much unused capacity, so many people were out of work. Now we're in a situation where you're like, okay, there's a labor shortage, you know, uh, the answer to that has to be, how do we improve people's productivity? How do we use the resources we have to produce more, uh, to earn more as a country, as a global economy? And that's a much tougher question than just like, how do you boost output? Um, and so I think it's going to be, I'm, I'm hopeful that more places are going to have to deal with those like productivity gains rather than just output gains and then that will you know embed in them a little more uh search for productivity search for efficiency in policy joseph palatano joining us is part of this though you just you just touched on this part of that productivity thing is technology has changed we now have the ability to work from really work for you could work from home before, but you can really do it now. Like the way we're talking right now, you know, you wouldn't have been able to do this 10 years ago. 
working from home, the gig economy, having side hustles on top of your main job has gotten easier for folks to do. Not that the work's easier, but it's just easier to do it and set it up yourself. Is part of the problem here because, you know, God bless them, I'm not even judging them, but we still have, you know, politicians going out on stuff and talking about bringing back the manufacturing jobs, which aren't coming back because we're a service-based economy now and they're not going to go out and say that. Is part of this that if the politicians are that far behind, our economists may be just a little bit behind on getting new nomenclature and new data sets on the fact that the technology is moving so fast now. We may have to redefine some of those productivity models to fit things like remote work, like side hustles, like the gig economy. I got to imagine for you folks where, you know, you have this disciplined science of economics, there's going to be a pretty long learning curve on how to start factoring those things in in a productive and more importantly, an accurate way, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's um, a difficult interaction where like the, the pace of technology always moves faster than the pace of research, than the pace of, you know, government statistics, just by, by virtue of um, how they're structured. And so it is really hard to get any kind of gauge on, um, on things like that. So I'll give you an example. The, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they collect all the um, unemployment, employment, jobs data in the U.S. They saw this coming. They were like, okay, people are working for Uber, for Lyft, for these gig economy jobs. Their jobs, even though they're not counted by Uber, Uber doesn't keep a tally and report to the government how many drivers it has. Um, so we got to find a way to do that. So they, they did this big survey of you know thousands of workers across several months. Sorry, I've got like probably the fire department here. Um, uh, thousands of workers across several months trying to gather like what are, you know, electronically enabled work, I think was the, the phrase they used. And when the survey came back, they were like, oh, this, this isn't working. <laughs> they, they, were say, they said this in the release, they were like, nobody understood what we were asking them. We had people who were police officers or, or doctors who were saying, oh, yes, I do electronically enabled work. I'm, I'm a gig employee. <laughs> and you're like, no, that's we're not asking about you. Um, and so there really isn't great data on like how many people um, are participating in these kinds of in these kinds of jobs. And you know, the the couple of things you can look at, are like if you look at business formation. So when I started my company, you have to file with the IRS, stuff like that. That's way up, you know, since the start of the pandemic. Um, so I do think there's been an uptick in, in people at least trying to earn side income through self-employment. Um, and if you look at like the uh, surveys of employers that are, or, excuse me, surveys of people that are a little biased uh, because people don't seem to understand the question well and, and it's a little confusing, but if you ask, uh, if you looked at the share of people who said they were self-employed, that rose pretty significantly during the pandemic and then came back down. So it's very interesting to me. I was like, I think very plausibly that lots of people in 2020, 2021 were working basically full-time for uh, um, gig platforms. Can I give you an accurate number? I have no idea. Can I, can I say how much money they're in? No. Um, and that's like a really difficult thing to say. And maybe, in five years, when I when the IRS uh, records are released and anonymized, I can look at it and say, "Well, it was this much," um, but that doesn't really help you because you're trying to plan for the here and now. Yeah, it's very difficult. That's that's the <laughs> moral of that story.
Yeah. Uh, Joseph, I'm not going to call him Joey because he's a very serious guy talking on a serious <laughs> topic and I just can't do it. Um, Palatano joining us. Okay. For the average folks though, because you're, you're trained, you know how to do this. When you look at a news story, let's say something hits GDP went down, inflation, CPI, one of those great numbers that uh, people talk about. When a headline hits, what do you do to get past the headline and the noise and to get to whatever is really important? And this is for folks like how can we improve our intake on economic issues? So when something hits like, you know, uh, just picking something, you know, inflation steady month on month or quarter to quarter or whatever the case may be, just take a headline like that. How do you go to start looking at that to see like, OK, is this a valid headline? We just saw this with the hey, inflation. It, Hey, no more inflation. It's like, well, no, inflation didn't go up. It didn't go away. It just didn't go up. You can you look, you can make the numbers say anything you want. You can put them on a chart, make them say anything you want. How do you start going past the headline and looking at is this good information? Is this bad information so that the rest of us can kind of learn to kind of turn that noise down and get into economics in a more productive and healthy way? Yeah, you know, it's it's very difficult because I think um the incentives in my industry, the incentives in the media industry are still very click biased, you know? So the, the, a lot of the pieces end up just being headline number, immediate reaction, you know, and then links to other stories that have been done. Um, I think the thing to always remember is like the monthly, the month to month releases are always really volatile. And they always have volatile components within them. You know, when you were talking about inflation was 0% in, in August, I think um, that was gasoline, which is like the most volatile price there is. It goes up 20% in the month sometimes. <laughs> does that matter for the economy? Yeah, but does it really tell you about like, where is inflation gonna go next month? Not necessarily. And so I think the biggest recommendation I have is just to try uh, try to disaggregate. Try to say, here's the headline number. I'm gonna go try to look at the components. Um, and, and I think that's a lot of the value I try to add in my writing is just saying, here are the components. Here's how this is built. Here's how uh, things are adding up together. Um, and if you look at that, some trends become like pretty obvious. And so we we're talking about inflation you know, you could just add up the contribution by category. Um, it takes a, a bit of annoying math, but you could do it. Um, and I think then this very clear narrative emerges where like in 2021, a lot of the inflation was durable goods, you know, cars, furniture, things like that. It was lots of food and it was a lot, a lot of energy. Um, and since 2021, those components have, uh, they haven't gone down in price that much, uh, if at all, but they aren't increasing at you know the rapid rate they were in 2021. And really the story is about it's about housing prices, it's about restaurants, it's about you know other components of inflation. That's really important. Um, but it's not something you're gonna see if you just look at like the headline number. Uh, I use just because uh, for people in the audience who like maybe aren't familiar wondering how to do this. I think the best research, uh, the best resource uh, is the Federal Reserve Economic Database. It's FRED, it's really easy to remember. Um, it's the St. Louis Fed. They they put this big database out there. There's like probably a million different data points. 
And you can just search and say, okay, you know, what is CPI um, for this component for rent, you know, for full service meals, you know, restaurant meals? What is it in my city? You know, because it's different everywhere across the country. And we were talking about this earlier. Like, yeah, if you're in Phoenix right now, your inflation rate is probably double um, what it is in New York, maybe even more. You know, that's important, but uh, it also gets hidden in the headline number. And I think when you look at the components like that, a lot of narratives become uh, easier to criticize or easier to understand. So it gives you a more grounded perspective when you're working from like the bottom up like that. Joseph Politano joining us. Let, let's talk about that bottom up real quick, though. Is there something to be said that the American psyche, and I'm just talking about generally here, whether it's politically, cultural, do we not have a handle on what our economy actually is right now? I just, I said it offhanded, but I want to dig into it because I feel like I just skipped by. You know, our Joe Biden does this every third time he talks about the economy. He's still, because he's an old school guy, he still talks about, we're going to get these manufacturing jobs back. And, no, you're not. And people, when they stop and think about it, understand, no, you're not, because it's very different because they still in their minds may think open heart steel furnaces with thousands of people and don't realize those are dozens of people running computers now. It's a whole different thing. We're not a manufacturing economy anymore. We're a service-based economy. Economically, if you did that as a research paper, that's a vast difference. But psyche-wise, I don't think Americans have changed their mindset to understand that I think that might be part of the problem with how we discuss these things and our expectations and how we think of this is like, maybe we just don't really understand what our economy really is right now. Is that a fair way to look at it? Uh, I, I think so. I do think people, you know, if you, if you look at it right now, so manufacturing share of employment, it's like 8%, you know, so you're saying less than one in 10 workers, which means functionally like one in 20 people, because um, about half of people either too young, too old, or other, you know, parents that are otherwise out of the workforce. You know, one in 20 people work in manufacturing in the US. And that number has been trending downwards as a share for, for decades because of exactly what we said, it's been trending downwards globally uh, in the same, for some of the same reasons that like in the 1900s, the share of people who were working on farms was trending down globally. Um, I do think there's like a rhetorical ideation for it because it's very, it's very concrete, very impressive. Uh, I, I like to think of it as like, it's very physical deliverable here. If you're saying I've built a factory or we've opened this new, you know, plant, it's, it's a lot easier to point to than it is to say, Hey, this new office building came in or this new tech startup happened and the tech startup or the office building might be a bigger deal for, you know, the actual overall economy. Uh, it's just a little less glamorous. I maybe am not as pessimistic as you are here, 
you know, I think that there genuinely has been, um, maybe starting in 2001, like the 2001, 2008 recessions, uh, especially were horrible for US manufacturing. Um, in a world in which those were avoided, which like, yeah, uh, if we could avoid every recession, that'd be great. But those ones were especially bad for, for manufacturing. Um, in a world where there's a, those are avoided, maybe, you know, we're talking um, a similar share of employment, or maybe even a lower share of employment, but that like output is better, that like the US maybe didn't lose the uh, semiconductor race to Taiwan, that maybe, you know, a lot of these uh, high tech manufacturing processes occur domestically. And that's a big value add. Um, but yeah, I do think I think people sometimes have this like, uh, misunderstanding, like this is uh, the joke I always make is like, check the summary statistics, by which I mean, like, yeah, if you're looking at saying, oh, this is going to be, this is a big deal. Um, manufacturing is coming back in the US, you know, lots of uh, manufacturers are hiring, hiring nowadays, or like their their demand for workers is really high. That's like an important story. But like, put in perspective, the amount of jobs that restaurants have lost over the last few years, much higher than the amount of jobs that um, uh, manufacturing has gained. And now some of those restaurant jobs are, I would actually say most or all of that is people who used to work at restaurants now working in offices or in warehouses, you know, doing higher paying, more productive work. Um, but that doesn't get the same rhetorical treatment as like if people were going into manufacturing jobs. So yeah, I think there's a long way of saying, I think people are maybe a little psychologically biased there uh, because of how easy it is, how deliverable. Um, you know, I think that uh, I was doing this big piece on inflation expectations. Um, and one of the things you consistently found was like the most concrete present things always have the most, uh, always have the biggest impact. And it's like, well, yeah, duh. Uh, but I think that carries over to a lot of other areas of economics as well. It's like, okay, people base their inflation expectations on what their grocery bill is, even though groceries are like 10% of, of uh, <laughs> their total spending, people base their expectations of how the economy is doing based on you know, how they perceive the manufacturing to be doing, even though manufacturing is not a big share of employment. Yeah. Speaking of employment, uh, Joseph Palatano joining us. You decided to do something economically, uh, maybe a little risky, but we're going to support you in it. Let folks know what you're doing because you're doing this full time now. You got to win in business for yourself, as they'd say in the wrestling game. Uh, yeah. Tell us about the Substack. It's great stuff. I'm a subscriber. I encourage everyone to subscribe as well. We're going to link to it. I've already been, I've used your stuff on the show a couple of times. Talk about your process, though, why you did it, why you found this little niche. You're get, And again, I'm just being transparent here. Uh, Joseph, Joey, he was recommended to me by people I trust that we have on and we talk about economics all the time. He didn't just fall out of a tree. So he's respected by the people that is respected. <laughs> That's as good of an endorsement as I can give you, brother. So now that I set it up for you, tell folks what it is and why you're doing it and what you're hoping to accomplish. Yeah. So, you know, I've had a very crazy journey. Um, it's just a little bit of background on me. Like before I, uh, before I was doing this like before the pandemic, I was working abroad 
uh, in in Uganda. I was trying to do uh, business development work. When the pandemic hit, I got bounced back here. I was working full time in Washington D.C. And then, you know, because there were so many crazy things going on in uh, in the U.S. economy and really in the global economy, I was just like, well, I think people misunderstand this a little bit. I think I should say something because I think people aren't quite, you know, getting it. I have some value to add here if I were to just write. And eventually, a lot of people will tell you this. Once you start writing, it becomes like a self fulfilling cycle. People. You know, tune in. They're giving you feedback. You're improving your skills. So over the last uh, year or so, I've been writing very consistently about you know everything that's going on uh, in the economy on on my newsletter. Um, and a couple months ago, I decided I was just looking. I was like, "There's so much I want to say, and I can't say it all if I'm you know doing this halfway. If I'm like." trying to juggle this in between my quote unquote real job. And so I decided I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'm going to be able to write more. I'm going to do this full time. So it is like a, it's like a subscription newsletter. It's like you mentioned at the very beginning of the show, I write these free pieces the same way I've been writing free pieces for a year and a half, trying to communicate like what's the most important things going on in the economy. And then I, uh, just a little over a week ago, kickstarted like the paid side of it. So going more in depth on some of the data that's important for for decision makers, um, and I will say I felt very blessed that, by the response uh, from from people like you, from you know the readers, from um, everybody online. When I when I made this leap, uh, I had a number, you know, because anytime you start a business, you got to plan ahead. Like I had a number where I was like, if I hit this number, I'm gonna keep at it for a year because I, I know I won't <laughs> run out of money by uh, next uh, next spring. And I hit that number, you know, already. So I'm, you know, ecstatic about that. Um, yeah, and we're happy to have your voice. We always like independent voices and helping the platform. It's good stuff. Support him if you can, but definitely, if nothing else, get that free thing. You're going to have stuff you're going to want to share on your social media. That'll do as much good as a paid subscription in a lot of ways. Get it out there for him. Appreciate your time. Let folks know where they can find you on social media. Let them know where they can find the Substack, my friend. Yeah, so it's uh, Joseph Politano. So it's just on uh, Twitter, which is the social media, of course, I use the most. It's just at Joseph Politano, uh, P-O-L-I-T-A-N-O. And then the newsletter is apricotas.io, um, and that's spelled with a C. So it's A-P-R-I-C-I-T-A-S dot I-O. Um, if you just look up uh, Joseph Politano newsletter, it'll also come up. <laughs> the, the unpronounceability of the name is a core part of the brand, but it does make things a little bit difficult. Yeah, it's funny. I, I joke with people um, when we're working with the young folks that we met, I tell them all the time, like the really funny thing is you spend all this time on branding. And actually, if they just Google my name, it brings everything up faster than the branding. It's, it's just one of them things. <laughs> yep. Um, one of those things. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, his uh, social media handles are all right there on the screen on the lower third graphics. If you're listening on the podcast, this will be in the show notes. We'll link to all of it. Like we always said, read it all for yourself. Make up your own mind. A lot of good stuff in there. Uh, now that you're free and doing, I, let me tell you from experience too, this not working a real job thing. I work way more hours than I ever did. At yeah. the real job. Um, <laughs> I know I'll tell you that from experience. 
but having said that, since you're working 16 hours a day now trying to scramble and get your hustle on, we're going to get you in the regular rotation, have you back real soon, my friend. Joseph Politano, thank you so much for the time. We're going to make you a regular. Uh, look forward to talking again real soon, my friend. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be on. Yes, sir. Thank you. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.